Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. So this novel is one of my favourite novels about the war. Um, it's, it's, it's not... It's not contemporary. It's it's actually more recent. It's one of the Alan First novels, and I don't know if any of the you um, have have read him, but he's just terrific at mood. He's not he's not quite so hot on plot, but he's terrific at mood and, and atmosphere. And the world at night is is just my favourite. Uh, and let me just read the blurb. So it says Paris, nineteen forty. The civilized upper class life of film producer Jean Casson ends with the German occupation of Paris. Out of money, almost out of luck, he attempts to work with a German film company but is drawn into the dark world of espionage and double agents. More used to evading jealous husbands than the secret police, Casson becomes the most reluctant spy, torn between honour, patriotism, love and survival. And the bit I'm going to read, it's Citizen of the Evening. So here we go. Night train to Madrid. The air was ice. The heavens swept with winter stars, white and still in a black sky. Jean Casson had done what he'd done. There was no going back. The train pulled slowly from the Gare de Lyon, clattered through the rail yards south of the city, then out into the night. A first-class compartment. Burgundy velveteen drapes, gleaming brass doorknobs. Casson pressed his forehead against the cold window and stared out into the dark countryside. Looking out train windows was good for lovers. Citrine, citrine. They'd made love in a train once, lying on their sides in a narrow berth, looking out at the backyards of some town, sheets hanging on washing lines, cats on window sills, smoke from chimneys on tile roofs. It was a long autumn that year, and nobody thought about war. Staring out of train windows good for lovers, not so bad for secret agents. We are all adrift in the world. We do what we have to do. Casson turned out the lamps so he could see better. Outside, the bourse. Old, deep France. France performed, it was said. A flat plain where they grew wheat and barley. Sometimes a forest where long ago they'd hunted bear with Beauceron dogs. A knock at the door. His heart hammered. Monsieur? Only a steward in a white jacket, peering at a list. Monsieur de Broy? No, Casson. Ah, Monsieur Casson, yes. Would you wish the first or second seating? Second. Very good, sir. He closed the door. The rattle of the train subsided. A man with eyes shadowed by the brim of a fedora came down the corridor, glanced into Casson's compartment. Calm down, Casson told himself. But he couldn't. The tanned, smiling Colonel Guska kept forcing himself to the front of Casson's attention. He wasn't a smart lawyer. Simich had been right there, Casson thought. But he was the sort of man who got things done, worked hard, full of vigour and stupefying optimism about life. Must get that spinnaker rigged. Must get that racket straight on my backhand. Must get to the bottom of that Casson business. He closed his eyes for a moment, took a deep breath, forced himself to take comfort from the dark countryside beyond the window. The French had fought and marched across these plains for centuries, 
They had fought the Muslims in the south, the Germans in the east, the British in the west, the Dutch in the north. He didn't know. But they must have some time or other. The War of the Spanish Succession, the Thirty Years' War, Napoleon. Calm down. Or they'd find him dead of fear, staring wide-eyed at the scenery. Then it would be their turn to worry about the 300,000 pesetas. Of course, he thought, they wouldn't worry very long. Or perhaps it would just stay where it was. God only knew what would be lost forever in this war. The train slowed and stopped. Outside, nothing special, a frozen field. Compartment doors opening and closing, the sound of a slow train rumbling past. Something to do, anyhow. He got up and joined the other passengers, standing at the windows in the corridor. A freight train, flat cars loaded with tanks and artillery pieces under canvas tarpaulins, gun barrels pointing at the sky. He counted thirty, forty, fifty, then stopped. The train seemed to go on forever. His heart fell. What could any of them do against these people? Lately it was fashionable in Paris to avert one's eyes when seated across the Germans in the metro. Yes, he thought, that would do it. The French won't look at us. We're going home. His fellow passengers felt it too. Not the German aviators at the end of the car, probably not their French girlfriends, drunk and giggling, but the man who looked like a butcher in a Sunday suit, a Madame Butcher. They had the same expression on their faces as he did. Faintly introspective, not very interested, vague. Strange, he thought, how people choose the same mask. Tall man, head of an ostrich, spectacles. Professor of Greek? A young man and his older friend, theatre people. Casson would have bet on it. The woman who stood next to him was an aristocrat of some sort. Late forties, red and brown tweed suit for travelling. Cost a fortune years ago, maintained by maids ever since. She felt his eyes, turned to look at him. Dry, weather-beaten face, pale hair cut short and plain. Eight strokes of a brush would put it in place. Skin never touched by makeup. Faded green eyes with laugh wrinkles at the corners, her only feature. But more than sufficient. She met his glance, gave a single shake of the head, mouth tight for an instant. How sad this is, she meant. And I don't know that we can ever do anything about it. He acknowledged the look. Then, by mutual agreement, they turned back towards the windows. Tanks on flat cars crept past, canvas stiffened by white frost. At that speed, the rhythm of the wheels on the rails, a measured drumbeat. Then it was over, a single red lantern on the last car, fading away into the distance. Casson and his neighbour exchanged a second look. Life goes on, and returned to their compartments. The train got under way slowly, dark hills on the horizon just visible by starlight. The woman reminded him of someone. After a moment, he remembered. A brief fling. Years ago, one of his wife's equestrian pals, whipcord breeches and riding crops. A long time since he'd thought of her. Bold and funny, full of prerogatives, afraid of neither man nor beast, rich as creases, cold as ice, victor in a thousand love affairs. She had a white body shaped by twenty years of bobbing up and down in a saddle, hard and angular, and in bed she was all business, no sentimental nonsense allowed. She did, on the other hand, have delicious fruit-flavoured breath, particularly noticeable when she had him make love to her in the missionary position. He'd wondered about her, connections with diplomats, months spent abroad, nights in exotic clubs one heard about from friends, wondered if she wasn't, perhaps, involved with the secret services. 
just as he had wondered what sort of hobbies she pursued with the riding crop. But he never asked, and she never offered. Her life belonged only to her. No matter if she spied, whipped, made millions, she didn't talk about it. Now, stupidly, he felt better, just being near a woman. But it was true. He dozed, woke up at Auxerre Station. The blackout made the station ghostly, the waiting passengers shapes in the darkness. The doors opened, just enough time for people to get on the train, then closed. The locomotive vented white steam that hung still in the freezing air. He waited for the coach to jerk forward as the engine got underway. Instead, the door at the end of the corridor was thrown open, and a voice called out, Control! Casson sat up so suddenly it hurt his back. In the corridor, German voices shouting instructions. What? This couldn't happen. Once the train leaves Paris, nobody bothers you. The Germans can't be everywhere. In panic, he twisted to look out on the platform, pacing shadows, silhouettes of slung rifles just visible in the darkness. The darkness. He tested the window. No give. Of course. Windows in a railway coach. You had to be strong. Strong enough. A door slammed in the passageway. Another opened. Jump out of the window. Call under the train. Across the track. Running full speed. Out into the street. Auger. Who did he know? Where did they live? Someone. There was always someone. Someone would always help you. The door to his compartment opened. Controller. He stood up. Something in German. A wave of the hand. Sit down. He sat. There were two of them. SS officers. Leather coats open to black uniforms with lightning insignia, steel-handled lugers in high-riding leather holsters. They hadn't been on the train very long. He could feel the cold air on them. Papier. A gloved hand extended. Cassum fumbled for his identification in the inside pocket of his jacket. His fingers had gone numb. The passport, the Ausweis, the envelope. He took them out. No, not the envelope. Clumsy, maladroit. His arm had no feeling in it, the hand thick and slow. Take back the envelope. He swallowed. There was something caught in the centre of his chest. Boss is lost. No, not this. This doesn't concern you. He placed passport and travel permit on the glove, started to put the envelope back in his pocket. His hand wouldn't work at all. He folded the envelope in half and stuffed it in, spreading his lips in what he hoped looked like a smile. Sorry to be so stupid. Sorry to be trouble. Sorry, sir. Regret. Excuse. Didn't work. Something interesting here. The officer now looked closely at him for the first time. Not very old, Casson thought. In his thirties, perhaps. A fleshy face. Fat later on. Small eyes. Cunning. This job was the most important thing that had ever happened to him. Not in a shop. Not in a garage. Casson looked down. The man hooked a gloved index finger under his chin and raised his head to where he could see Casson's eyes. What are you to me? Just one more pale Frenchman or a fatal error? I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Lazily, the German inclined his head towards the luggage rack. Valise, he said softly. Casson's hands were shaking so badly, he had a hard time getting his suitcase down from the luggage rack. The Germans waited, the heavy-faced one taking a second look at his papers and making a casual remark to his colleague. Casson recognised only one word, gusk, as in, It's Guska who signed the travel permit. The dossier must be handled in this office. The response was brief, neutral, and something more. Respectful, as in, well, sometimes you come across these things. The officer turned on the lamps in the compartment. Whatever was caught in Casson's chest now swelled and made it hard to breathe. He fumbled with the lock, finally laying the suitcase open on the seat. It looked harmless enough. Two shirts, side by side, one of them fresh from the blanchisserie, the other worn, then folded for packing. There was a nice leather case that held razor and shaving soap, socks, shorts, the copy of Bellamy that he'd meant to read on the train. The heavy-faced officer picked up the book, held it by the spine and shook it. A slip of paper used as a bookmarker fell out and drifted to the floor. Next he felt the front and back covers, rifled the pages, worked a finger down between the spine and the binding and ripped it off, holding it up to the light, checking one side, then the other, then tossing it and the book onto the seat. He reached over, lifted one corner of a shirt, saw nothing very interesting beneath it, a newspaper perhaps, and dropped it back into place. They handed Casson back his identity papers and left. He heard them, opening the next door in the passageway, shouting orders as though they were men in a dream. Very slowly, he slid the papers back into the inside pocket of his jacket, next to the envelope. His fingers rested on the envelope for a moment. What they would have done to me. In the dining car, the second seating, 10.30. The only light, flickering candles on the white tablecloths. The woman in the tweed suit was shown to his table. 
Monsieur, I hope you don't mind. No, not at all. He was glad of the company. The waiter brought a bottle of wine, cold vegetable salad, and an oily mayonnaise, nameless fish in railroad sauce. De Casson it barely mattered. I am called Marie Noel, she said. Meeting on a train, you see. We don't have to wait ten years for first names. He smiled, introduced himself. He would be happy to call her Marie Noel, but he did wonder what the rest might be. She sighed. It always came to this. There was, she confessed, a thoroughly disreputable person, sometimes addressed as Lady Marinson, but it wasn't really her. The title was by marriage, a husband who had died long ago, something in the small nobility of Sweden, a diplomat of minor status. Terribly concerned with jute, she said grimly, morning and night. She herself had been born into a family called de Vlach, from the Dutch-Belgian border, even smaller nobility if that's possible, and grown up on family estates in Luxembourg. They called it wine, but, you know, really. She smoked passionately. Gitan followed Gitan, lit with strong fingers stained yellow by nicotine, and laughed constantly, a laugh that usually ended in a cough. To hell with everything, she said. That's what it says on my family crest. Citizen of the evening, resident of Paris, since time began, and the only nobility I acknowledge is in good works for friends. A German officer, covered with medals, moved down the aisle between tables. His girlfriend followed along behind, vividly rouged and lipsticked, wearing a tight cap of glossy black feathers. When they'd gone by, Marie Noel made a face. Don't care for them, Castle said. Not much. But you can leave, can't you? She shrugged. Yes, maybe I will, but where to go? Sweden? Pooh! Switzerland, then. Switzerland. Switzerland, yes, there's always that. Geneva, grey, but possible. On the other hand, the visa. I mean, you have to know. God. Well, not just a nod to. Last September, a friend of mine went through it. She tried the embassies, the Americans, the Portuguese, and the Swiss. Spent hours in queues, but in the end, all she could get was a Venezuelan resident card, which cost her a fortune, and worse yet, the only place she could go with it was Venezuela. She stubbed out her gistam, lit another. Well, she tries. She does try. She's positive. She's cheerful. She's all the things you're supposed to be. So different, she writes. The Latin culture. Sunny one minute, stormy the next, and Caracas. Intrigue. Of course it's ghastly, and she's miserable. It isn't Paris. It's a kind of horrid not Paris. She sees other emigres, most of them grateful to be alive, but all they can talk about is when we can go back, when life can be what it always was. The train slowed. They peered out of the window, trying to see past a reflection of the candle flame in the black glass. They were at the edge of a small city, passing the cottages that lined the track. Then came the dark cathedral with tall towers, winding streets, the railway station brasserie, and finally the platform. Bourges, the sign said. Now a port of entry for the unoccupied part of France governed by Vichy. The French border police were waiting on the platform, holding their capes tight around them and stomping their feet to keep warm. More police, Marie Noel said acidly. French this time. Yes, there's that to be said for it. She exhaled smoke through her nose and mouth when she talked. Tell me, she said, leaning over the table. Her voice lowered. They didn't give you too bad a time, did they? The SS? I was listening next door, but I couldn't hear much. Not too bad, he said. The train jerked to a stop with a hiss of steam. 
The gendarme came down the aisle, asking politely for papers. They knew they were in the first-class dining car, rolled the Madame and Monsieur off their tongue, had a desultory glance at each passport, then left with a two-fingered salute to the visor of their cap. Only a formality, of course, you understand. Remarkable, Marie Noel said, when the police had gone to the next table. You are perhaps the only person I know who's ever had a decent photograph in a passport. Casson held it up and said, What, this? I wouldn't let him in my country. Yes, but look here. Is this not the aunt kept locked up in the attic? He smiled. It was even worse than that. Now, monsieur, she said, a mock serious note in her voice, how am I going to persuade you to allow me to buy us a brandy? He would not allow it. He insisted on paying for the brandies and for those that followed. Meanwhile, they smoked and talked and made the dinner last as long as they could. Very late at night, after the stop at Lyon, the train started the long run down the Rhone Valley. The sky cleared and the moon ran beside them, a yellow disk on the still river. She grew tired and reflective, not so sure about the world. What do you think, she asked, in your heart? Must I leave this country? Perhaps, he said. Peut-être, could be. In diplomacy it meant yes, yes with regret. Of course, he went on. It's not something I can do, so maybe I shouldn't be giving advice. Not something you can do? No. What stops you? He looked puzzled. In a few hours, she said, you'll be in Spain. Sunny Spain, neutral Spain. From there, ships leave daily to every port in the world. But why wait for a booking on a ship? There is a ferry in Algeciras. It goes across to Ceuta. One simply pays and walks on. Then it takes less than an hour. You're in Spanish Morocco. Once there, well... It was true. Why hadn't it occurred to him? He had 300,000 pesetas in a suitcase, a travel permit for Spain. A thousand stories began this way. An opportunity, a sudden decision, then freedom, a new life. It took courage, that was all. He saw himself doing it, walking off the ferry with raincoat tossed over one shoulder, hat brim turned down, valise in hand, turning to look back one last time at the dark mass of Europe. Why not? What would he be giving up? A movie that would never be made? A woman who was never going to love him again? A city that would never be the same? But then, from somewhere deep inside, the sigh of common sense. The man with the raincoat and the hat brim turned down wasn't him. Perhaps, he said, you will join me for a drink, Madame Marie Noel, at Fouquet's, one of the tables on the boulevard. A corner of her mouth turned up in a grin. She flirted with him a little. Chilly for the outdoor tables, monsieur, no? I meant in the spring. Ah, she considered it. Probably I will meet you there, she said, then shook her head slowly, in gentle despair for both of them. Charming, the last romantic. He sat back in the chair. It was very late at night. It is the only trick I know, he said. Then after a moment, you're one too. No, no, she said. I'm something else. <laughs>